You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. All right, well, thank you for joining us yet another week here on the podcast, and we're going to talk to you today a little bit about the evidence for the resurrection. We just celebrated Easter a few weeks ago now, and I'm really looking forward to talking about an approach to the evidence that goes beyond, uh, a little bit further beyond, what many like to to approach this question with. Um, you know, it's no secret that the resurrection is the event that hinges on the, um, or rather, I should say that the uh, really history itself hinges on this event of Jesus's resurrection. If Jesus Christ, uh, if Jesus of Nazareth, the person who claimed to be God in the flesh and the uh, Jewish uh, Messiah and one with Yahweh, God the Father, if that if that person really did live and really did die and then rise again from the grave, then the story of Christianity is true. And that truth brings along with it all of the hope and all of the glory and all of the promise of the biblical record, of everything that the Bible reveals to us uh, on those things. And that is just, uh, to me, um, infathomable. It, it makes it makes it to where this question becomes one of the biggest questions, if not the biggest question, that one could have an answer to. Um, what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you believe about his death and resurrection? There is no question that a person could answer more important than that. And by the way, the Apostle Paul totally agreed. Remember what he said to the Corinthian church. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. And you are yet in your sins. The point is, if Christ is not raised, then there was no atonement. There was no redemption. There was no moment in time when God uh, declared those who would come to Christ judicially just and righteous. That never happened if the cross did not happen. And so we are still in our sins. But fortunately, I think we can show that the cross happened. And we can show it from multiple angles, from multiple disciplines. And that's what we want to talk about just a little bit today on the podcast. Now, um, when when we look at this Easter celebration, it is a time, you know, for us to uh, celebrate our Savior's passion for us, but it's also a time to share it. And be able to share it with other people. And so I was uh, listening the other day to some debates and lectures and Q&A sessions around that subject, around the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. And one such presentation, and again, if you want to, you can go to the uh, show notes here and um, you can uh, just click in whatever podcast player you're listening to. If you're not on the website, you can click on uh, the link there for the show notes and follow along with us. There's an entire blog post here. You can follow along and that way you can actually see some of the links and things we referenced throughout. But one such presentation I was listening to from none other than Dr. Lydia McGrew, who um, is really one of the smartest and sweetest Christian ladies and philosophers I know, uh, touted a maximal data approach, is what she called it. 
to arguing for the truthfulness of the New Testament accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, a side note here, uh, I don't know that many uh, smart, sweet female Christian philosophers, but I'm proud to know her. Uh, Lydia certainly is one of them, and her and her husband, Tim, are just just a, a, a force to be reckoned with, I think, for the cause of Christ. They are two great people and two people who, who love the Lord and also are sound thinkers and very, very clear thinkers. So let's talk about uh, a distinction between maximal and minimal. And this was really the heart of the presentation that was given by Lydia. The first half of the presentation described a variety of approaches to this question of the resurrection. Now, all of these fall under what is commonly called a quote-unquote minimal facts approach to presenting this data. Two of the leading proponents in the world of the resurrection also tend to take this tactic, this uh, at least some form of this minimal facts tactic. And they are Drs. Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. And there is going to be slight variation in approach even uh, between them. But the central idea is this one. We can have confidence that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are truthful, even now catch this, this is this is this is crucial to the argument. Even if we only use the data which secular historians will grant. Let me say that again. We can have confidence that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are truthful, even if we only use the data which secular historians will grant. Now Sure enough, I mean, the motive behind that approach, and it, can, it probably just resonates with you to hear that, right, is virtuous. I mean, I think it's a good thing that we are able, I think it's a great thing, actually, that we are able to show from data that is virtually undisputed in the scholarship that we can show from that that Jesus was raised. But as Lydia noted throughout her presentation, I do think there are some problems in this approach that end up with it weakening the overall case that uh, that we have to make. Uh, some of those issues involve a lack of clarity around what many scholars are actually willing to grant about uh, Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. Too many unnecessary concessions to the liberal scholarship. That is, I mean, things that we have very good reason to believe from the biblical text are are true. Um, this approach might concede them to be false um, in accordance with liberal scholarship to avoid having to argue the point. A watered-down definition of gospel reliability, the need to defend additional information that kind of renders the approach uh, not so minimal after all, etc. So these are all considerations and things that, again, Lydia fleshed out very nicely and very thoroughly, I believe, in her presentation that you can grab a link to if you go follow along in the blog post. So for Lydia and her husband Tim, and again, they've both defended the resurrection together, the strength of the case doesn't lie in how few data points mainstream scholars will grant, but instead how many data points are actually well-evidenced. And this is the heart, this is the essence of that so-called maximal data approach. 
So let's look at just a, a few of the hallmarks of such an approach. First of all, a succinct presentation. So some object to using this argument because, well, honestly, or let, let me not say this argument. Uh, let me say this approach. Some are going to object to using this because they assume that it would take too long to present in a debate setting and to argue for because, again, we're talking about maximal data versus minimum facts. So when you just put those two side by side, you know, the impression you get is that, well, geez, when it comes to maximal data, I mean, we, we you know, you, you're going to leverage everything that you have in support of this particular contention. Well, that's not necessarily true. Actually, um, what happens is you end up taking a stronger position on things because you think they are more well evidenced. But that doesn't mean that you have to present a convoluted case or in any more complicated case, even in something like a debate setting. So as Lydia mentioned, um, for example, you could, uh, you, you could present this approach with just a simple trilemma. Here, this was what it would look like. Either the disciples were deceived they were mistaken or they were telling the truth. It's really that simple. And then you give, you know, two or three arguments or maybe even one, I don't know, one, two, three arguments in support of each of those contentions and then go from there. You can show using the data we have that the disciples were not deceived, neither were they mistaken. And then you have to work on the basis of arguing those points. But again, you use all the data that you have at your disposal, the full reliability of the uh, of the gospel accounts, the coherence of the accounts, the um, what you might call the kind of re reportage uh, or eyewitness kind of model, where you have eyewitness data that does not contradict, but neither does it evidence any sort of collusion. These are all the kinds of things that would go into producing strong evidence that the accounts that we see as written in the Gospels are indeed factual. The second kind of hallmark of this approach is strong reliability. So there's an emphasis here, which you may have picked up on from my last couple of sentences, but there's an emphasis on the reliability of the New Testament as giving accurate information. The minimal approach, again, would argue its case in spite of a sort of assumed unreliability, even if it's only for the sake of argument. So, for example, in, in a setting like that, uh, Gary Habermas, I think, or even Mike Lacona, would be happy to take the most uh, corrupted New Testament, okay? Just, let's just, let's just you know, be vague about it, but let's say that we have a super corrupt Old Testament, or excuse me, uh, rather, New Testament, and... Um, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a New World Translation, you know, I don't know, uh, just whatever this uh, corrupt New Testament text is. And Habermas would say, based on the facts presented merely in there, I can show that Jesus was raised. But again, um, of course, he doesn't believe that. He believes that there's a strong reliability uh, to the gospel accounts. It's just that he doesn't make the point of arguing for that in these kinds of settings. But but why why take this approach? Because there is good evidence for the reliability of the documents, and it may get you further along in the actual um, in the actual debate. Now, let me just go on a little bit of, of a rant here, if I could just kind of derail uh, for for a moment. It simply amazes me that so many skeptics cannot let go of objecting 
to what the Bible says because the Bible says it. Okay, I mean, it doesn't matter how scholarly the presentation uh, that has been laid out, etc. Um, and how many times they have showed that the objection that, oh, you're getting all your information from the Bible. Um, it's just not a valid objection, nor does it apply to their argument. And uh, the skeptic doesn't come to the table with any new reasons for why their objection is sound. Um Again, surely you've heard this, right? Well, you're just using what the Bible says. Well, again, the, the Bible, just what is the Bible anyway? I mean, the Bible is a collection of historically reliable documents, um, of documents that report of real events that happened in real history. Again, they repeat this common internet atheist trope, but but that argument is in the Bible. You can't use that. You can't use the Bible to support your case. Now, multiple, you know, different apologists are going to think about this in different ways and they're going to espouse different positions and take a different route on responding to this kind of question. But my favorite is probably how Vody Balcom put it at one time. I love this way of thinking about it. He says this, you don't win a sword fight, again, I'm paraphrasing, but you don't win a sword fight by explaining the science of metallurgy. You slice the other guy with your sword. In Christian love, of course. So I see no reason why the statements in the Bible cannot be used to defend the Bible, even if taken as authoritative and inspired. Because again, it's 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 data that we have. It's factually supported data with um, markers in it that that go toward its reliability. Again, even among secular scholars. And here's what it all comes down to. It comes down to a hidden assumption that author bias is equal to contrary to actual fact reporting. Let me say that one more time. It, it all comes down when you run into this, when you run into people saying you can't use the Bible to defend your claims. What it all comes down to almost every time is this hidden assumption that if the author of the text was biased, then it is necessarily going to be contrary to actual fact reporting. The problem with that is if we were to grant that assumption, that assumption would absolutely destroy the possibility of ascertaining historical knowledge about anyone living at any time and in any place, not just Jesus. So again, we, we do want to affirm, I think, in the case for the resurrection, a strong reliability of the Gospels. And I think we should not back down from that. We should not redefine that. We should not be looking for the most corrupt version of the New Testament to base our argument on. I don't think so. I think we should go full force with everything we have and demonstrate that we have documents that are reliable. We have information that was passed down about events that took place in real time and in real history. All right, and the third kind of hallmark of the approach is the breadth of scholarship. Now, so the minimal facts approach often ignores points that only conservative scholars will accept, even in most cases the empty tomb story. And you have over 75% of the scholarship who's going to grant that tomb story. But um, again, uh, why? Why leave this out? It seems to me that that's extremely powerful evidence. There are multiple facets to using the empty tomb that, that, that go toward the reliability of the count in general. Um, to me, 
ignoring evidence like this merely encourages the incorrect assumption that we talked about, that conservative scholars are not objective researchers and reporters. I just, you know, frankly, I see no reason to play further into this faulty and defective narrative. So let me say that I do prefer the maximal data approach. I certainly do. And here's why. So in summary, I see zero reason to think the Gospels can't be treated as reliable sources. Again, we talked about this. Um, it's a point that would be up for debate in a debate, but it's also well evidenced. I do think that there is great evidence to see the Gospels as reliable sources about the life of Jesus. Now, I also see zero reason to think that believing scholars can't be considered objective voices with respect to the evidence at hand. I mean, it almost seems absurd. If you have somebody who is persuaded by the evidence that what it says is true, then they are likely going to become a Christian, or at least they should. And so uh, does that mean that they are now biased? So at, at, you know, at one point in time, they weren't biased when they were looking into it. Now they became a Christian, and so now they are biased? I mean, that just makes absolutely zero sense. When you, when you look at something like this and the, the very nature of, of the case, the very nature of what you are reporting is something that is so transformational and has this spiritual dynamic to it. And if somebody is convinced of the evidence, then, you know, likely they would become a Christian. And so therefore, um, I think it's totally short-sighted and not to mention just inaccurate to say that somebody like that can't be considered an objective voice with respect to the evidence. There's just, you know, a, a powerful cumulative case to be made for the truthfulness of these narratives. There's a preponderance of evidence available to us. So I say, let's use it. And let me give you some disclaimers here. You know, I want to echo Lydia in saying that Habermas, Lycona, and others who, who advocate for this approach pretty much believe the same data that the McGrews suggest using. What's at issue is in what context this data should be presented and how it should be presented, how much of it should be presented, things like that. And Habermas and Lycona both willfully admit that on any given day, they may change their mind on how to approach things. Uh, they will use different data in different contexts with different people, different amounts of data, different kinds of data. I mean, there are different circumstances, but the point of even recording this podcast and writing this blog was the absolute point of this is that we don't have to bow to the skeptic's faulty request to present only data that folks who take this non-Christian worldview will grant. To me, to me, that makes absolutely zero sense. There's no good reason to think that we are restricted to using that data. So it rejects that. It rejects that and asserts that a more well-defined starting point, which argues from the breadth of the data available and um, avoids unnecessary con con um, uh, concessions excuse me, about the facts, would be a better approach. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again this week here on the podcast. Again, let me share with you that if you like what you hear, it would be absolutely great. It would be wonderful if you would share this podcast with somebody else. Word of mouth really seems to be how podcasts are spreading these days, according to all the statistics that I see. And so I would really love to get more people on board here. Um, 
If you think the instruction that we provide on a weekly basis is helpful, it helps you grow, it helps you uh, share your faith with others, it brings you closer to a relationship with the Lord, then I would love for you to just share it with even just one other person this week. Tell somebody about the show. Uh, highly recommend an episode to them that you like, and we can hopefully get more and more people sharing the content and getting the content out there and um, and helping people grow. All right. The uh, review I want to read for you this week comes from my friend Sherry over there at Creation Science for Kids. She does a great job, I think, and uh, she also does some work now with David Reeves Ministries and the Creation Club over there. And again, she's just a a wonderful person and um, a a, um, a good resource uh, with creation material especially for your children so i would highly recommend you check out her information again that's creation science for kids or the ministry that she currently does work for more full-time which is the creation club and that's a ministry of david reeves ministries she says that the podcast is a caring voice speaking on solid topics steve's show keeps getting better and better i especially enjoy his series on logical fallacies because they are everywhere and we can all use a reminder of how to think carefully his conversational tone is friendly and it is clear he doesn't look down on us but treats his listeners as equals as i write this steve is in his second season and i look forward to many more god bless all right thanks sherry for uh leaving us that review uh, again this review did come in a while ago so we were doing some different things on the podcast then i'm not really doing seasons now um just kind of coming to you every single week lord willing and we'll keep that up if you continue to listen and support and share the show so if you'd like to have your review uh, read on the podcast i would love for you to to leave it that would be wonderful any podcast uh, store any itunes store in any country Castbox, spotify any of those platforms if you leave a review i will see it and that will help others and encourage others to listen to the show and i would greatly greatly appreciate your doing that all right well god bless you we'll see you on the next one hope you have a great week